episode two of Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast hosted by me, Liam Cagney, and me, Stephen Graham, discussing recent research in the field of musicology. So in each episode, we talk about two articles that have recently been published, and our aim with the podcast is that wants to engage debate among musicologists and to give the general public an idea of some of the work that's currently going on in musicology. And as well as discussing the two articles, we do a little roundup of the journals as well, called Research in the Round. This week we're going to discuss two articles which contrast in that one is by a senior illustrious member of the musicology discipline, Lydia Gurr, whilst the other is by a young scholar, Scott Gleason, at the outset of his career. Okay, so on to the first article. The first article is Lydia Gurr, Does It Matter Where We Begin? or On the Art of Preparation and Preluding, published in the September 2015 issue of the Journal of the Society for Music Theory. Lydia Gurr is Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University. Uh, she's the daughter of the composer Alexander Gurr. She's best known as the author of The Imaginary Museum of Musical Works, an essay in the philosophy of music, in which she puts forth the idea of the work concept, what she calls a regulative concept, which has determined classical music practice and thought since the 19th century, and which came into practice around 1800 or so, tying in with the work of Beethoven and the whole genius concept. This has been a very influential book, and it made her name and her career. Since then, she's published a couple of other books, The Quest for Voice, Music Politics and the Limits of Philosophy, and Elective Affinities, Musical Essays on the History of Aesthetic Theory. She's also written articles on the work of Adorno, Merleau-Ponty, and other philosophers. Gurr's background is in analytic philosophy. She studied at Cambridge University and she definitely comes out of that tradition. I think she said in an interview before that she didn't really encounter much continental philosophy during her philosophy studies. She herself has compared her work, which mixes philosophy and history, to the work of Michel Foucault in charting a genealogy of concepts and the archaeology of our musical culture. Moving on to her article, Does It Matter Where We Begin or on the Art of Preparation and Preluding? The article is a transcript of her keynote address to the Society for Music Theory at the end of 2014. And the subject of the article is preparatory preluding, the practice pre-1800 whereby in a concert situation musicians would improvise in preparation for the performance of the main work in the concert, improvising on some of the content of that main work. Gerr links this to prefatory remarks in oratory, the purpose of which was to prepare the audience for what was to come, or to attune them, or to sweeten them and bring them into the main work. Gerr states, near the start of her article, quote, My address explores what the practice of preparatory preluding once contributed to securing a key or pitch that signalled both that the speakers or performers were ready to perform and that the addressees or audience were ready to receive. The preparation was a ritualistic gathering in which, by way of the preparation, all were attuned in body, mood and mind to deliver the art or to accept the art that was delivered by way of the performance, end of quote. As you might expect, Gurr links this to the work concept on her thesis on how music history has been determined since 1800. In this regard, she writes, quote, As I see the matter, the work concept either killed off or so revised the preparatory demand on preluding that the practice of preparatory preluding became the art of a romantic prelude already prepared. What, I will ask, happened to preparation in the romantic prelude? And what did the romantic prelude offer beyond the symphony to our understanding of the work concept, end of quote. So it's kind of hard to summarise this article because she's talking about preparatory preluding 
want to start the critique now I suppose she doesn't really give many examples of this and it's hard to I found it hard to put myself into the scene that she's describing also she has a very digression based style in this article which is kind of understandable given that it was a keynote speech it's a transcription and in this digression based style she talks quite a lot about Plato's Athenian stranger as he's found in the laws where the issue of prefacing is discussed and also Moses in the text of the Old Testament as someone who prepared his people and had to deliver on a promise. So I'm not sure where to begin with this, ironically enough. What about you, Stephen? Well, I think you put your finger on one of the, the nubs of this that I wanted to talk about, which is the, the muddiness of the distinction which kind of runs through this article between this concrete idea of kind of formal, informal preluding, if you like. So yeah. this thing which she refers to here and there, this idea that in concerts you'd have this attunement, this kind of tuning up of the audience and so on. And every time she, she starts to talk about that, I, I find myself getting more kind of engaged and invested in the idea and I kind of want to place myself into those scenarios and, and feel out those, those kinds of tensions between beginnings and kind of, I guess, beginnings and non-beginnings and transitions and all that stuff which she seems to be alluding to. So there's that on the one hand, but then on the other hand, you have this issue that this thing of preluding or preparatory preluding or whoever she describes it, because she describes it in various ways, yeah. it becomes this this kind of overarching, very woolly, very, like you said, digressive, very kind of peremptory kind of framework or kind of just idea which travels so widely and broadly and globally that I just get completely, not completely, but I get kind of lost in the, in the, in the sway between these two, these two kind of ways of looking at this topic. So I was really interested in what you, your sense of this, how that gets lost, that distinction in the article. Well, she's describing something concrete, seemingly. Mm. As I mentioned, she doesn't give many citations or even quotations from contemporary texts which, which describe the practice to give us a, an impression of what it was. But also problematic is that beyond simply pointing out something that happened, that used to happen, it's hard to actually figure out what the relevance is for now. What's she actually saying we should derive from this? And she ties it to the work concept and, and so on. But I still kind of struggle to understand yeah. what, what she really cares about. Well, she swings this. back around right at the end to this idea of... She, she uses this, this idea of preparatory preluding as a kind of a prop for the idea of how, how might one persuade, how might one convince. It's a kind of a rhetorical device which can be used to, I guess, bring people into a topic or, like the example of Moses, how do you introduce a law? Is it through song or is it through reason? And she thinks that preluding fits more in the line of kind of, of song or, or kind of non-Apollonian uh, right. modes of thinking. <laughs> and then the reason thing kind of opposes that. And she swings back around through that discussion right at the end to this idea that preluding can be a kind of a, a way of thinking about persuasion I guess and it can be a way of opening up a sense of I guess kind of thingness ontology you know mm -hmm. what music is what it means to engage in a musical event or experience maybe I'm kind of over extending this a little bit I don't think so actually that's that seems like a good way to look at it so if we compare the distinction between preparatory preluding and the prelude as a genre that mm. we can actually trace how a generic form forms mm. so we look at it before and after um, which ties in with the work concept and she does talk about Bach's preludes I think I've got a quotation here 
Consider the prelude numbered the first of Johann Sebastian Bach's. Does it still carry a sense of its being a preparation for an event greater than itself? And if not, what does it mean for preparation and for the work concept to treat it as self-standing? So it's a good question, actually. Well, what does it mean to treat a prelude not mm. as a, a genuine, authentic prelude, but a, as a thing in itself? Yeah, I mean, I think there's also some, to give her credit, as well as, as well as all that kind of stuff, Whenever she gets to the work concept, I feel like it, it becomes sturdier as a as a text or as a set of ideas because she's so obviously she's so on top of that and she's so versed in, in the kind of cultural meaning and impact and and kind of processes that took place around the work concept and are still taking place. So every time she she kind of got to that stuff, I felt like I felt like the text was kind of lifted a little bit and I felt like this thing of preluding actually mattered and had some stakes to it mm-hmm. because actually it was a way into thinking about the, the kind of historical... Well, let's get Foucauldian, because since, since he mentioned at the outset, it feels like a kind of a genealogical discourse, the work concept. And when she starts talking about preluding, it feels like a kind of a way in. It's like the way he uses confession and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Confession is this, is this kind of idée fixe or something throughout sexuality, and it's a way that sexuality gets embodied and kind of discourse, if you like. Mm-hmm. So her idea of preluding is kind of a nice little way into it the idea of the work concept and the specific ways that the work concept gets formalised. So, so how a practice gets institutionalised, how, how uh, an impulse gets institutionalised mm. and becomes a, sort of a structure, a governing structure. I suppose one problem I have with this is that I, I really uh, am unsure if I buy the work concept. Concept. The concept of the work concept. Though she does mention that uh, music was paralleled in visual art and in written discourse in the 18th, or sorry, in the 19th century, in going towards the idea of masterpieces and so on. I'm not so sure. I mean, I'll read out another uh, quotation here. She's talking about how um, the work effaces its labour or the work effaces the effort that's gone into it. For the musical work concept to conceal the labour of preparation was for the work to assert its authority over the performance, to demand of the performance that it present itself as though always already prepared. A performance was not meant to try out, but a strict compliance to what was already established by way of sense and form, end of quote. If I understand it correctly, she's saying that musical works don't exist. They're just a way we have of thinking and regulating musical practice. But to analogize with painting, for example, we speak of masterpieces in art, of artworks. I don't understand why we can't speak of musical artworks in the same way. Uh, an, an analogy for me might be how portraiture transcended its ostensible aim, which was to represent somebody at a given time and became a, a whole thing in itself, and how these artworks live on then far away from their original function. Uh, by comparison with music, then we might say if that's a piece of music that was composed for a specific occasion by Mozart or Haydn or somebody like that lives on as a sort of a masterpiece. I don't know uh, whether I'm representing her fairly. I, yeah, I never got this. I've never got the sense from reading her work that she or anyone else who kind of who kind of works with who kind of deals with the work concept following her. I've never got the sense that people are skeptical about the existence of musical works. I've got the sense that they're they're trying to think about the ways that the idea of a musical work gets constructed as well as gets kind of embodied and kind of materialized and as well as how it just exists in the world so I've, I don't know I've never got that sense but yeah maybe you might be right what was the quote again oh, I'll read it out again for the musical work concept to conceal the labor of preparation 
was for the work to assert its authority over the performance, to demand of the performance that it present itself as though always already prepared. And this, this practice got sort of pushed away in favour of stylization. So it's not to do with the... I mean, this is another way in which... There's another moment in this article where I felt like it was, it was quite compelling to me when she starts to talk about... I guess this is what is underlying the thing you've just been saying, the commodity imperative. So the idea that labour and the social relation which underlies all commodities gets hidden away and concealed through the process of commoditization. That's what a commodity is. It's a, it's a product. It's, it's a product which is based on social relations and its value arises out of social relations, but that, that kind of situation is screened away for it to exist as a commodity. It, it exists as a kind of an endpoint, even though it's a, it's a process. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess that's what she's saying. I found that quite interesting when she talked about musical performance and, and musical works have to become kind of final or create the appearance of being final as a result of things like preluding becoming undervalued. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found that kind of shift fairly convincing. And also just the, the way that it gives... I want to come back to this thing of work concept because I'm really interested in that. She's giving it a kind of a historical texture, which is, which is very interesting. And actually, as a, since she's a philosopher, she's not great on historical detail, as we've said. Mm. We, don't get, we don't get archival research being done here necessarily. We don't get testimony from people who lived and wrote at the time. We don't get all that due kind of diligence that we would probably get in a more conventional historical text. But what we do get is philosophical concept analysis. And this is where it kind of sings a little bit, where she can draw these big connections to... Um, to capitalism and, and Marx and to work concept and all that stuff. So I find that, I find that kind of interesting. Let's come back to the work concept, though, because I'm intrigued by what you were saying. Okay, so I can't really engage with her on a philosophical level. That's probably appropriate to, to what she's doing, but I can indicate some of my reservations, maybe. So I find uh, something in common between what Gera's doing and what somebody like Georgina Bourne is doing, where it's a quite grand um, analysis of some fundamental elements of our musical culture. But the analysis isn't just in terms of institutions and social relations and mundane things. And I just mean mundane literally as in yeah. worldly things. And it's completely discounting any transcendental type of element in the musical experience. And there's an interview I saw with Lydia Gurr where she she's saying it's for Eon actually, which is a pretty good website. People have always wanted to make mistakes music mysterious but that this is a bad thing because music is mundane and everything about it can be basically explained by its situations and context and I don't agree with this because I think in the, in the experience of the artwork there's something transcendental and there's something that actually goes beyond even being human or being a, a subject a historical subject there's an ahistorical element in the artwork and I think that that's something that she would certainly not really account for and this is where I find other philosophers of art more interesting than, than what she's doing but since she's making such grand claims she's also kind of taking over that territory to an extent. That's all really really interesting and I, and I definitely buy the, the critique of something like the work concept or some of the things that Georgina Bourne says or Tia Denor about genius being a social construction. I definitely buy the idea that you need to insert some kind of specificity or like some kind of concrete or like I said transcendental kind of um, elements to all that stuff because because I guess bringing it back to philosophy I mean this is the old Gordian knot of context and of thisness or thingness 
right? And of course, it's a, it's a kind of an insoluble relationship because everything is always context and everything is always not context at any one time, depending on what dimensions we look at. Because of course, everything is always context. If you talk about music, you can easily frame that as purely contextual because if you wanted to take it there, you could say, well, there's no such thing as music without a perceiver. Mm-hmm. And that's context, that's intersubjective, which suggests something beyond the musical object itself. But then you can go the complete other way around. And I know I'm just teaching grandmothers to suck eggs here, it's an obvious point, but you go the other completely way around and say, well, if it's purely context, how is there an object there to perceive? There has to be something persisting through different perceptions for there to be perceptions. Do you know what I mean? So everything can be context, everything can be specific, non-contextual. So it's, it's that kind of relationship which I find interesting. Whenever we get an argument, which as you've, as you've kind of laid out there, Gura maybe flirts with the idea that she wants to push things to that end of it, you can just completely counter that and say, but yeah, of course there's a, there's a, a specificity to music which underlies all those contextual things. And I guess you were making a bigger point, which wasn't just a philosophical thing about what exists, but it was actually about, I guess, value, because you said there's some transcendence thing to music, which is, which is a kind of a core quality of it. And I guess that's, that's, a, that's just as valuable a refutation of, of the work concept than the more philosophical one about things having to have a specific as well as a, a process. For me, um, a believer in the work, <laughs> in what it works. The, sorry, the work, yeah, yeah, a believer in the work of newness is one of the most important elements in music, and that's another unfashionable term. Mm-hmm. She doesn't really account for a newness in the artwork, and I think the artwork is all about newness in the history of music since around the time of Beethoven and being about that. It's like a taboo subject nearly now to, to talk about newness in music because people claim that there was a dogma of newness post-World War II and that everything had to be continually new and so on, and that we've gotten out of that stage now. But if we have gotten out of that stage, I think that's a really bad thing because what newness means for me in this context is unknowledge. It's something that's unknowable and that actually slightly dismantles our concepts in being new. And uh, that's what provokes musicology into action, into being a discipline, into having to think about what's happening. So the appeal of work such as this is limited for me when it's almost exclusively backwards looking. I can get its value in tracing how our discipline has evolved and our musical culture has evolved, but it seems limited in what it can actually tell us about art. Yeah, and it's, it's slightly in danger of, of straw manning, isn't it? Because it's like, who really would disagree with her, her concluding points about having to get away from the work concept and, and having to soften the work concept and all that stuff? I think most people would probably agree with that. Mm-hmm. Even, even hardline traditional musicologists and performers, they wouldn't necessarily say that the work is simply the score or the work is simply uh, you know, an inviolable text. Yeah. Everyone recognises, I think, that musical works change, but that there can still be musical work underneath that. So, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree, actually, with that. So, can we talk about style, though? Yeah, OK, let's talk about style. OK, so it's, it's a spoken lecture, obviously, but even given that it's a spoken lecture, I just find some of it really kind of baffling. Somebody said once that all the great philosophers, capital G, capital P, uh, were also great writers, and that uh, it's impossible to be a great philosopher without being a great writer, too. So I'm not sure where that puts us here, because some of the writing is, well, let's just say self-indulgent. I can read out a little bit, maybe. 
Okay, will I just read out the first yeah, paragraph? Yeah. Doesn't matter where we begin, what could this question possibly be asking for? As an anxious question, it usually meets with a simple retort. We have to begin somewhere, so does it really matter where? Perhaps, however, I'm making a false start, and should ask whether it matters not where, but how, when, or with what we begin. Although, just by considering these alternatives, at least I've made a start. I already feel a bit like the white rabbit instructed by the King of Hearts to, quote, begin at the beginning and go on till the end is reached, and then stop, end of quote. But Alice quickly enters my world to prevent me seeking too many adventures in Wonderland. Don't descend the path of puzzle and paradox, she warns me. Just stick with the Confucian wisdom. That the most successful beginning presupposes a preparation from which it derives its sense as a beginning in the first place. End of quote. Well, there's a, there's a rush to that. There's a, there's a forward momentum which I can appreciate. Yeah. And there's a kind of a... Well, there's a kind of a poetry, I guess, to it, which I can definitely appreciate. However, I can easily imagine a mutual friend of ours on Facebook saying, quoting that passage and then saying, or, and then having one very brief sentence which condenses <laughs> yeah. it all. Okay, okay. And I would partly agree with that. I think there is... Okay, so it's hard to get the balance right because I don't really like completely prosaic things, whereas this is... Pr- possibly too flamboyant and a little bit self-indulgent, but there should be a little bit of poetry at times to what we write. The problem within the context of the article, though, is that I found it difficult to actually get to the parts or identify the paragraphs where she was saying something about her argument, because there were so many other little paragraphs which were padding, which didn't really seem to have any place in the overall. And as a consequence, and this is uh, something that's maybe a, a wider issue you can spend a long time reading an article and not really know what, what exactly it's saying you have to reread it sometimes to actually get what the main points are she does state here and there what they are but all these little digressions distract from things yeah I mean, it's think? such a difficult question because okay first of all let's talk about this article specifically I guess she could easily retort to that well the digressions are the point because the article is about digression and about right. getting away from kind of solid kind of concrete kind of arguing I guess and, and kind of yeah so, so so there's that there's also just this this kind of perennial tension in in all writing I guess but especially um, academic writing about culture between well between yeah I guess between kind of florid styles on the one hand which are heavily digressive and heavily take ages to make their points and maybe that's part of the point on one hand and on the other hand and um, more straightforward straight to the point writing filled with clarity, writing that emphasises clear chains of ideas and, and well-stated arguments and all that stuff. Now, I would always tend to try and pitch things somewhere in the middle of those two, because I think when you pull from both ends, you end up with potentially interesting results, because after all, knowledge and our experience of the world is never just blunt, straightforward declarations of fact or declarations of opinion. It's always a bit messy and it's always a bit hard to wrap our heads around and I think poetic language and writing helps us to helps nudge us into a sense of the world I agree and so process based writing sometimes too not necessarily sequence as you say of A to B to C but working through some ideas which doesn't always involve logical deduction yeah so it's hard with this and we're going to come to this issue with the next article I think with, with showing your workings I don't know I don't know where you draw the line I think in the end obviously it's a matter of personal judgment I guess where you sit with this stuff I think I, I think I'm with you on this that this article gets a little bit too far into 
into Derridean kind of realms. And I love Derrida, but my God, I have to take a deep breath every time I read <laughs> his works. Yeah, I recently went back and started looking at grammatology again for the first time in years, which I was you know, very passionate about at yeah. one point. I still love the ideas, but stylistically I find it more irritating. Were you um, reading it in French? No, no, in English. And uh, Spectres of Marx too, which I haven't read all of. Looking at that again, really the style gets no, <laughs> kind of gets in the way for me. Oh, it's grim. Have yeah. you ever read uh, The Instant of My Death? No. It's, short, it's a brief text Something about a long show. Yeah. And it is, I thought there was some kind of holy, holy writ that was encoded in at the time because I was completely bought into it all at that yeah. point. But just looking back on it, it's, wow, I don't know. Well, there's, there's, there's such an emptiness to it that actually it becomes quite compelling. But yeah, so it becomes literary in itself. Yeah. Then, that's another thing, actually, and that's kind of interesting, criticism as literature, mm. but that's on another topic. So, since you've brought it up, let's move on to the next article. Do you want to introduce that? Okay, so the second article we're going to talk about is by Scott Gleason. The title is Analysis as Improvisation, a Phenomenology of Otomo Yashihide's Anode 2. So, just to give you a bit of background on Scott Gleason, he finished his PhD in Columbia in 2013. He's currently an assistant editor at Oxford University Press. Um, he edits for Open Space magazine, Perspectives of New Music, which is where this piece was published, and formerly for Current Musicology. He's written all sorts of articles for journals such as Philosophy in the Public Realm, Theoria, and so on. He's done work on historical music theory, music and philosophy, and phenomenological and experimental analyses of new music, uh, into which category this article definitely falls. So, as a way of just giving you a sense of what is going on here, I thought I would just read the very first paragraph in this piece because it sums things up quite well, actually. In his Anode pieces, Otomo Yoshihide seeks to suspend a musical listening, encouraging listeners to hear sounds just on the cusp of music before reifying into predetermined analytical categories. Otomo further encourages listeners to become co-creators. Listening is improvising, composing. Phenomenological analysis would appear most suited to this type of listening situation. Can we, as phenomenological analysts, evoke analytical categories without allowing sounds to solidify into things? Can we, as co-creators of this music, respond to Otomo's Cajun performance requirements? Can we, then, present a phenomenological analysis of Otomo's Anno 2 that is also an improvisation? End quote. So as we can see, this, this article is essentially an attempt to improvise on an improvisation. It's an attempt to write, as he says, uh, what he calls a phenomenological analysis, and we can get into what that might mean, of this piece in a very deliberate kind of style, which tries to bracket away kind of predetermined analytical models and modes, in a sense, uh, and tries to kind of, I guess, match the spirit of the music with uh, analysis, which is similarly kind of free and undetermined. So what we get is essentially a close listening. We get, what is it, 17 or 18 pages? It's long and exhaustive, yeah, something like that. So we get a close listening, and this is probably 90%, 80 or 90% of the text of this article is a close listening to this piece. Uh, we get a very brief flash of framing that I just read out, actually, because very quickly after that he, he dives into the, the analysis. And then right at the end, in the last couple of paragraphs, we get what he calls some meta-theory about what he's been doing. But apart from that, we, we barely get any kind of 
digressions uh, or, or kind of considerations of framing or, or what he's actually up to. It's all kind of close up on the music and on very much on his experience of the music. Okay, so I think I've said enough about what is going on here. What were your reactions? Going on the first paragraph which you read out, it's an interesting prospect. There are a lot of interesting uh, aspects to it. I really like the music. It's, it's yeah. Did, did you read out the performance requirements? No, why don't you read out the rules there? Yeah. Okay, so it's almost performance co- slash compositional requirements for all of the anode pieces are as follows. One, do not respond to the sound of others. Two, do not form a course from the introduction to the conclusion. Three, avoid any popular rhythm, melody, cliché, etc. So this is a really fascinating basis for improvisation. And we went to see Otomo before a few years ago at Cafe Otto, and it was, uh, as I suppose it usually is, a very compelling performance, kind of exasperating at times, really on the cusp of what you can make sense of, but fascinating all the same. Should, um, we, should we actually give some background that he doesn't really supply to Yoshihide? Sure, go ahead. Well, just briefly, he's a Japanese musician. He works a lot in improvisation. He, he uses turntables. He uses... Uh, drums, he uses various other instruments. He was in the band Ground Zero. He works a lot with people like fellow Japanese improvisers like Sachiko M and Taku Sugimoto and other people. And in this piece, he's not actually performing. Uh, he has written the, the score, if you like, or the, the rules, and he has produced the, the recording. So he's kind of mastered and equalized the sounds that we hear, but he hasn't actually participated. I can totally understand how inspiring music or fascinating music can provoke you into action. I think that's kind of connected to what I was saying a little while ago. So I can understand what the basis of this is. He wants to see how effective musical analysis is in relation to a piece such as this, which is really doing its best, its level best to evade all types of categories and ways we can possibly think about it. So it's a good premise and it's at once about the music and about the disciplines, about musical analysis and what can musical analysis do and what it can't do. And Gleason uh, is explicit in stating that at a couple of different points. The realisation, though, stylistically, I just I found difficult. The prose is one of the main barriers for me. It's, it's, it's an experiment, and I'm definitely interested in it from that point of view. It's an experimental article that's trying to construct its own terms through the process of writing and listening. I just don't think it's all that successful. And he himself admits at the end that it's something of a failure, but a fruitful failure. By exhausting a certain method and a certain set of possibilities, that can open up something new, and that's basic to a scientific method. But yeah, slightly self-indulgent, I think. Again, I'll just read a couple of the end notes. So oh yeah, so we should say he does provide a little bit of framing and a bit of context in some of the end notes and... In a few other places. So one of the end notes is, under Le Guin's diagnosis description, it seems, is alive, but dead, liminal, a phantasm, perhaps homosexual. Given this, does it feel uncanny to find myself writing a dead discourse? And another one, the crux of the problem of music analysis seems for Agao to be social, but more precisely, it's saleability money. I find this depressing. Um, so it's kind of putting the formal and the casual right beside each other. I just had a student that I was talking to earlier about, about style and writing essays and I was sort of pointing out things like colloquialisms that you, just, you can't really put into academic essays. So, well, fair play to him. He's pushing against that here, Gleason. He's, he's trying to push the boat out a little bit, but I just don't think it's all that successful because without more compelling results, it's not really given us enough. 
But there are a lot of interesting things here too. Another thing which I have a problem with is calling it a phenomenological analysis. Is this something that you ever think about? Well, I should I should really say first of all that I I'm, I have a lot of, as as you have too. I think I have a lot of sympathy for what he's attempting here, both in terms of what he's chosen to write about, which is music that I've written a lot about and I've been trying to trying to kind of bring into musicology a little bit if that sounds like a hugely grand claim I don't mean it like that I just mean that this is music that doesn't necessarily get written about by many scholars and I've been writing about it so and this is the reason I picked it because I was interested in what he would come up with so in that respect I've a lot of sympathy I've also got a lot of sympathy with someone who tries to push the kind of methodological boat out a little bit and, and attempt something bold I think he's he's tried that here my issue with it is and it comes out of the thing of phenomenology I guess is that he doesn't ever he kind of wants to have his cake and eat it because he doesn't really ever give us a sense of deliberately he doesn't want to give us a, a kind of a formal description or a sense of what he's up to here either in drawing on phenomenology or in contextualizing this music or in contextualizing the kinds of language choices he makes here to describe that music so we don't really get a sense of who Yoshihide is. We don't really get a sense of, certainly don't get a sense of what phenomenology is. And we don't even really get a sense of what music analysis can be or is. He deliberately kind of puts that stuff outside the frame of his discussion. And I think that, and I'm clearly bringing a bias to this as a musicologist, but I just feel like you end up putting the kind of, well, what's the phrase? It's the kind of tail wagging the dog here. We're, we're, we're just lacking substance and I really don't mean to be prescriptive or kind of normative I guess about what substance might be but I think in this article a little bit of framing would have really helped yeah would I have really so. added to what he's saying I think so because as I've said a couple of times I do think it's very worthy what he's doing and I think it's important that people are doing things like this actually to trying out experimental methods and writing about music like this but if you're writing about phenomenology without using or acknowledging Does what, reference what, one person. Yeah, what one person or the concepts of phenomenology, you're gonna get into trouble by transgressing what phenomenology is about or I mean I know very little about it, but I know there's a distinction between the natural attitude and the phenomenological bracketing and that this is really basic to the phenomenological method. But I'm not sure that he's is he taking account of the fact that there's a difference between theorizing something and experiencing it. Well, no, I think that's one of the many little tensions, which I guess he's, again, he's deliberately leaving outside his discussion. Um, but, but apart from that, apart from that kind of root, root and branch tension in phenomenology, there's all sorts of subtle schools and, and approaches within phenomenology, which, again, in leaving aside, he, he risks both looking like he's inventing the wheel or trying to invent the wheel, and he leaves out the benefits he would have got from grappling with some of those ideas. Something that would have interested me more is if he had gone in the other direction and just really put himself even more into into the written article so that at a certain point he describes getting up and going to use the bathroom and then going to the kitchen and putting on some toast and having a cup of tea and thinking about something one of his mates said to him that morning. And um, This really is embodying himself. He would be embodying himself even more within uh, the terms of the music and creating, I don't know, creating a, a wider context so on the one hand you can establish yourself within the scholarly context on the other hand maybe you can establish yourself corporeally in the yeah because because his, his, his attempts to do that oh i can hear this at my eight o'clock or i can hear that in the top of my body it feels a little bit like tokenistic to me yeah yeah so it's not specific enough 
we can't really get into what exactly is happening. Because after all, his 8 o'clock could be anyone's 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. We needed some, some texture to that 8 o'clock. Sure. It's exhaustive. That's the other thing. With musical analysis, I mean, often we, we focus on one aspect of, of a piece of music, a salient aspect or something that gives us a larger insight. Whereas he kind of pursues a chronological description, just a description, which is phenomenological, I suppose, of the piece of music. And that being the case, it's hard to um, figure out what, what, what's the important part of it. Or... Well, it's slavish. Can I, can I give a bit of background just very briefly? Sure. Um, when I started my PhD, which was not unrelated to this topic in many ways, actually, in the very start of it, in the first few months, I had conversations with one of my supervisors about how I would negotiate the links between theory and practice, i.e. writing about the music, the, the, the making of the music, the doing of the music, and then theorizing about it. And we came up with this approach, actually very similar to this, where I would try and do the, the practice bits, actually write about the music in a narrative way, in a kind of analytical narrative way, like he's done here, and then kind of theorize after, rather than having that, doing the kind of the lip service where you spend a lot of time going, here's this thinker, here's this thinker, and here's the music, which, which evidences all that trying to put the music more at the forefront. So I, I attempted this, and I ended up with a few pages that looked quite similar to this article. And, I, and again, this is going to sound really unfair, because I really don't mean to kind of judge from a lofty height or anything like that, but for me, I kind of looked at those pages and I thought, there's not enough to this. There's nothing keeping it to the ground. Yeah. It just looks like indulgence, an indulgent experiment. And to me, this art, and again, this is going to sound harsh, and I, don't, I genuinely don't mean it to sound harsh, it feels like an indulgent experiment. He feels like a really strong writer. He feels like a strong thinker. I, I'd like to read more of his work. Yeah, but, yeah, but this, it feels like an indulgent experiment. It feels like these are his initial workings for an article, which he should have spent six months more developing. And what I ended up doing, personally, I ended up using a bit of that writing I did initially. And it was on, it wasn't on Yoshihide, but it was on uh, Ruins, who are kind of a related Japanese act. Ruins and Derek Bailey, the Ruins and Derek Bailey thing. And I ended up using a bit of that later on, but what I did was I just trimmed it down massively and I changed the, rate, changed the rate of information. So what I would do is I'd have a paragraph or two where I would go into nitty-gritty detail about 20, 12 seconds in with this, 22 seconds in. But then I'd step back and go, in the next 10 minutes, these big events happen. And then I'd dive in a little bit again. And then I'd have some theory. Mm-hmm. So it was just a way of kind of balancing out a little bit more both levels of musical detail and the relationship between uh, the music stuff and the, the theory stuff. So I felt like that worked a lot better for my purposes. So therefore, I'm clearly going to have a bias. When I, when I encounter this, mu- writing about music, which I kind of ri- wrote about in a kind of a similar experimental way and judged to be a slight bit of a failure, I was always going to find this a little bit lacking. So in sure. fairness to Gleason, I'm definitely bringing some biases here. Sure, well, it's natural, as you say. You obviously know the scholarship on this type of, of material, if there is any. Is there much scholarship? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, okay, so there's, he, in one of his footnotes, he references about five books, which he could have, he could have kind of engaged with a little bit more robustly. So David Novak, for example, my book, which is coming out in a few weeks. Um, what I want to get Well, no, that's, that's what I wanted to get onto. Because <laughs> yeah, you, so it's, my, it's so my book. Can you talk a little bit about your own analytical approaches to this music? Well, what I've this ended, type of music. Yeah, yeah, so what I've ended up doing is, is treating it in a fairly traditional way in that I wouldn't necessarily project big traditional analytical categories onto it like, well, form and pitch and all that stuff. I would try and let the kind of music dictate 
the kinds of analytical terminologies I, I would use. But apart from that, I, I do it in a fairly, in a fairly normal mainstream manner where I'd have passages talking about musical detail and I'd have passages framing that detail both in music stylistic terms and then in, in kind of cultural theory terms of what it might mean. This type of approach seems to be gaining some currency recently. I went to an event, a colloquium at King's College London a few months ago for Arnold Whittle's 80th birthday and there were four speakers. Jonathan Cross was one of them talking about the journal musical analysis and the development of the discipline. Another was Rachel Beckles-Wilson. She, for her presentation, decided to give essentially a phenomenological, or I think she called it empirical analysis of some uh, musical events she went to. And it was quite similar to this Gleason article, actually. Yeah, I found some of the same. What did you get from it? Yeah, well, this, this is uh, one of the main issues. I just, I just can't help but read this and just go, so what? Yeah. Why, am I, why should I be interested in 20 pages of you talking about your experience in this music? It doesn't bear it out. I wonder, though, is it connected to just going into fiction and literature? This kind of this uh, fashion for autofiction, uh, people like uh, Nasgard uh, exhaustively writing about his own life and everything he's experiencing. And there are other authors like Van Lerner who are doing the same thing now, getting rid some some degree of the conceit of fiction and just writing about themselves. Are we getting into a more, um, well, not that it's narcissistic, but are, are we becoming too preoccupied with ourselves? Well, I like the idea of just getting rid of the conceit that we're ever writing about anything other than ourselves. Yeah, okay, However, I think the job of, if, if, if it can be prescriptive for a moment, if academic writing, if musicology has a kind of a task, I think it should be to grapple with, with interpretation. I talked about this in the first episode, but I don't see this as an interpretative piece. I see it as a, I guess, a, a kind of a descriptive piece which kind of fringes onto interpretation but doesn't quite get there, and I think that's where it, it ultimately kind of falls short for me. So this might be to do with a musical analysis it's taught. It's too often focusing on nuts and bolts and that type of thing and not often enough on concepts, actually, because for me, interpretation is about concepts, either using yeah. existing concepts or inventing new concepts. Mm. And it's where, it's where we actually get stakes. Yeah. It's why it matters, what's, it's, what your, it's what your take on this stuff actually is. What did you, just thinking about that, what you just said there about music analysis, about nuts and bolts, what did you think about the kinds of details he paid attention to? I think that they're worth paying attention to, but actually what I just mentioned there was one of my main reactions. I'm, I'm going to just see if I can find it. A typical passage because it might help people who are listening. Okay, so this is one paragraph. Can I hear 30s cycling circular pattern falling out or continuing as a different pattern, the white noise, relatively high bandwidth I've been listening to since 0 to 0 two seconds? Or can I hold in my hearing at its beginning this pattern both as a distinct event sounding at its beginning and at the same time during the same pass as a rearticulation of the sound of that bandwidth? particularly when the faint bowing occurs, I hear the circular pattern of moving within the space of the bandwidth, but prior to that I'm more able, brackets, willing, to hear it as a response, as a re-articulation, yet separate from, as a kind of handoff from 34 to 35 second slash D's light surge from and through and pull back into 31's resonance. I hear at different analytical times this circular gesture is resonating both within that space, moving within it, and as a gesture, broken off from, disconnected. So what do I think of this? It's potentially useful in the way that you describe as working notes towards something else. Just using this music to create new concepts or categories to describe it, I think, 
would be the act of interpretation as I would see it that's that's lacking and I don't know if that corresponds to what you said about your PhD thesis and forgoing some of the uh, traditional categories like pitch and then bringing in more appropriate ones. What about the what about the uses of yeah I mean this isn't a huge point but what about the use of pitch pitch classes? It's I I don't think that it's necessarily relevant. It's immediately caving into the request that we don't use preconceived analytical categories. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, there's so many preconceptions, and he would—I think he does acknowledge that. Yeah. Is that, but also just the fact that in this music, we're not often hearing equal temper pitches. I right. found it strange that right, okay, yeah. things like yeah. So there's those details which are maybe questionable. But then, just when you're reading out that passage, you know, just again, it, I just come back to this idea that it kind of so what you know, this just—it feels like seeing at a party when someone's just talking about themselves. I'm sympathetic to a lot of it, but I, I just, it did, the, the proof was not in the pudding. Yeah. Well, well let's get to the, the, the pudding. What about that final page? Um, should I read it out? Or yeah, I think so. Yeah. There's only a couple of paragraphs. Okay. Yeah. In a sense, then, I failed at multiple goals, both my own and others, but we can always thematize failure. We can always make the positive move of figuring these failures as achievements, and perhaps this series of failures demonstrates the limits of analysis as normally conceived more than any failure of the subject, perhaps another of analysis impossibilities. Music analysis is designed for music after all, not science. Confronted with improvised science, perhaps then it is analysis that must change, not the science, which prompts the question, which I will not assay here, of what can analysis, within its own practices, not do. I'm actually just going to stop there before the last paragraph because I think we need to just mention yeah. that. I can't say anything more insightful than that it's problematic. Well, in many ways, one being the distinction between music and sound. How can you say that something is sound and not music when you've listened to it as a piece of music? Yeah, that's, that's, that seems to be problematic. Also, I, found, I find running through this whole thing as a kind of an idealisation of the idea of improvisation. And I feel as if Again, this is where the kind of buttressing of previous literature and previous um, ideas and arguments would have really helped because a lot of people have written about improvisation, both in terms of seeing it as this kind of idealised form, like so Eddie Prevo and, people, and Derek Bailey and people like that have written about the ideal improvisation being feeling like you're on the edge of a chasm, like you're always going to fall off the chasm, like you never know what's going to come next. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, by contrast, have kind of responded to that and kind of tried to tried to ground it a little bit more and said, well, for example, Tom Perch, a colleague of mine, um, wrote an article about Thelonious Monk and showed how through different improvisations, he's always calling on conventional riffs and motifs that he uses all the time that come from the jazz tradition and that come from his own, his own kind of expressive style, which is an obvious point, but it's an important point. Improvisation is never improvisation. Right. The same thing can be said about free improvisation, which is, holds a contradiction in its very name. Derek Bailey acknowledges that, so his famous term is non-idiomatic improvisation. But even in his very, the first time he mentioned that in his book, Improvisation, in the first edition, he acknowledges, when you go back to the source, he acknowledges that you can never have music which is non-idiomatic. So this idea of pure freedom, just hovering over this article maybe, um, in terms of how he views Yashahida, it's a complete, it's a, just a, it's a, it's a mug's game, basically. Right. Um, so I would have loved a bit more teasing out of those those rules, both in terms of that stuff, about that big philosoph philosophical stuff. Which There's important. been a lot of debate about a lot, that. A lot of it, yeah. Which, you know, we, maybe we could have added three or four pages of that, and maybe that would have grounded and also fleshed out and just given a bit more complexity to 
the way he approaches this stuff. Because then maybe he wouldn't have viewed his own supposedly unpredetermined phenomenological response in such in such idealized terms. Yeah, there's this quasi-ecological attitude of just letting science be, letting them be themselves, and so on, um, which is kind of tied to that, I guess. Now we'll pass on to research in the round, talking about some recent uh, journal publications in musicology. And Stephen, did you have a particular journal that you wanted to talk about? I wanted to talk briefly about the latest issue of Perspectives of New Music. It's, it's the issue that this article we've been talking about comes from. And I guess despite of some of the things we've been saying in the last few minutes, I, I do think... I do think, though it was a, I think a failure, it was to some degree a kind of a worthwhile failure, an interesting one. It raises a lot of issues, and it looks like some of the other articles in this in this issue of perspectives operate and swim in some of the same kind of waters. So there's a piece by Henri Cho called "Music Analysis as Poetry," and I think that would probably make a fruitful kind of a sequel to some of the things we've been talking about today. There's another piece called The Theoretical Improvisation of and Within Possible Worlds, which clearly is picking up on some of the same issues. There's another piece called New Notational Strategies for New Interpretative Paradigms. And there's a piece called Split Centers, Gamelan Fusion, Post-Multiculturalism. And there's a piece called Becoming Composer. So there's a kind of a, a through line through all of this of new approaches to analysis, new ways of thinking about music, improvisation, and so on. So it looks on the whole to be a a really interesting and kind of worthwhile issue. I thought I would look at the latest issue of Contemporary Music Review, which just came out recently. As usual with Contemporary Music Review, it's a themed issue. So this is a special issue on landscape and music, perspectives from practice. It's based around some work that's being done by a research group on an AHRC-funded research project called Landscape Quartet um, as a means to interrogate through practice-based research and philosophical speculation and reflection some of the issues invoked when sound artists and musicians attempt to make new music and sound art in the landscape. So there's a range of different articles here. For example, Matthew Sansom, Dissolving Dualities, Auto-Epistemological Implications of Ecological Sound Art. And another one is by Bennett Hogg and Stefan Ustuju called Patterns of Ecological and Aesthetic Co-Evolution, Tree Guitars, River Violins, and the Ecology of Listening. So the whole issue is on this topic of landscapes and ecology, and it's tying in with sort of growth in work in that field. Leonardo Music Journal has a lot of similar articles in its most recent issue. As far as I remember as well, Contemporary Music Review put out a call for submissions recently for suggestions for new themed issues, if anybody feels like getting involved. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks very much for listening again, and we'll look forward to talking to you again in the next podcast. Love you, bye.